You're listening to Pastor Ryan Couch as he teaches through the book of Ephesians. If you have your Bibles with you, please open them there. Ephesians chapter 4 this morning, continuing to go through the book of Ephesians chapter by chapter and verse by verse. And the book of Ephesians can be easily divided into two sections. The first three chapters deal with our wealth, what Jesus has done for us. The last three chapters deal with our walk, what we do for Him. The first sentence of chapter 4 is a real turning point in the book of Ephesians. Paul takes a hard right here. And and he basically moves from theology to practicality. From doctrine to duty. From the reality of who we are in Christ to how we should respond to that position. And as we study this section over the next several weeks, as we study chapters 4, 5, and 6 over the next several weeks, we're going to see how we should walk as Christians, how we should respond to all that God has done for us. And it is a response. You see, Jesus first loved us. He demonstrated His love by dying on the cross for us, by taking our sin, by blessing us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. And now we, we respond to Him. We respond in several areas that Paul is going to deal with over the next few chapters. He talks about our character. How that our character should be a response to what Jesus has done for us. He talks about our relationship with the church and to the church. Just as I alluded to and spoke of this morning. That if this is your church, if this is the local body that you call your church, then you respond to the love that Jesus has shown to you by serving and using your gifts and and helping the church with the things that God has given to you. See, that's your response. We don't do it to gain favor with the Lord. We don't say, okay, Lord, I'm going to serve in that ministry so that you'll love me. God, I'm going to give that money so that you'll accept me. God, I'm going to, to do the things that the church is asking me to do so that you'll, you know, forgive my sins. No, that's not it at all. We do all of those things as a response. And so Paul talks about our character. He talks about our relationship to the church. He talks about our marriages. And how those need to be a response of what Jesus has done for us. Because marriage is all about our relationship with Christ. It's pictured in that. Jesus is the groom. We, we are the bride. And, and it's pictured in the marriage relationship. He deals with parenting. And how that we should be parents that model our relationship with Christ. He talks about our work and our careers. He talks about Many things that are very practical as he moves here from doctrine to duty. From the reality of what Jesus has done for us to how we should respond to that. And so our text this morning is Ephesians chapter 4. We're going to look at verses 1 through 6. And here Paul is going to give us an exhortation and then a fivefold explanation. So let's read our text and then we'll look at those points specifically. I therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, beseech you to walk worthy 
of the calling with which you were called. With all lowliness and gentleness, with long suffering, bearing with one another in love, endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called in one hope of your calling. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is above all and through all and in you all. And Lord, as we open your word again, God, it's with expectant hearts. Lord, we want to hear from you. God, help us to to not be distracted by the things in our life, the things that are going on around us, Lord. Help us to focus and to hear from you. God, give us eyes to see and ears to hear. God, give us soft hearts to receive. Lord, may we leave here not only hearing your word, but being doers of your word. We thank you, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. And so the first point is is exhortation. Paul gives us an exhortation in verse 1. He says, I therefore the prisoner of the Lord. And so first of all, I want us to notice how Paul describes himself. He describes himself as the prisoner of the Lord. Notice he doesn't say the prisoner of Nero, but of the Lord. He doesn't say I'm the prisoner of of Rome or I'm the prisoner of some unfortunate Jewish uprising. He says I'm the prisoner of the Lord. And this, of course, has a, a double meaning. Figuratively, he was a slave of Jesus, completely surrendered to the will of his master. That's what he's speaking of. He's saying, I'm a prisoner of the Lord. Figuratively speaking, my life is surrendered to him as ours should be. But literally, he was a prisoner in a Roman jail, chained to a prison guard 24 hours a day. He was arrested there in Jerusalem because the Jews got upset with him and they turned him in and he appealed to Caesar. And so to Caesar he went and he boarded a ship and that ship was shipwrecked on the Isle of Malta. And I mean, it was a a long, arduous journey. And then he ended up under house arrest. And then eventually he would end up in a dungeon, in a Roman dungeon. And then eventually he would have his head chopped off. He was decapitated for the cause of Christ. Paul says, I am a prisoner of the Lord. He accepted his current state as from the Lord. He didn't see his prison sentence as a bummer or the end of his life or the conclusion of his ministry. He said, look, I'm in prison. And while I'm here, I'm here for the Lord. And so I'm going to be available to be used by the Lord. And you know what? Many of us are in prisons of our own personal circumstances and situations and difficulties. And like Paul, maybe we didn't bring them upon ourselves. You didn't choose to be born into the family you were born into, to be subjected to the abuse that you were subjected to, but that's where you were. That's what you endured. You didn't choose to have the kind of children that you've had. Maybe they're rebellious. Maybe they're giving you difficulty. Maybe you're in a prison of, of financial struggles. Maybe, maybe you're in a, in a prison of debt. Maybe you're in a prison of the fact that you hate your job, but there's no way out of it. Maybe you're in a prison in your marriage. And you have a terrible marriage and, and you don't know what to do. 
in your estimation of yourself is that you are a prisoner of those things. You would write, I fill in the blank, prisoner of my debt. Or I fill in the blank, prisoner of my marriage. Or I fill in the blank, prisoner of this stupid job that I hate. And yet what God would want you to say is that you are a prisoner of the Lord. In whatever state that you're in. That you would, like Paul, make the best of it. You see, Paul would have much rather been out planting churches, visiting believers, leading people to Christ. He would have much rather been out doing that. But instead, he was in a Roman prison. But he didn't say, you know what, Lord, you've abandoned me. You've turned your back on me. So forget it. I'm done with this. No, he said, look, I'm a prisoner of the Lord. So I'll write letters to the churches that I've already planted. I'll encourage them. And now we are reading one of those today. Because Paul was faithful. Paul was faithful to be used in his circumstances. And you know what? If you will make the decision to be used of the Lord in your present circumstances, you don't know what kind of blessings that will produce years down the road. But if you say, ah, God, you gave up on me. You must, you must not even exist. You must not be real. You must not love me. And, and you turn your back on on the Lord in that time, then you've just now ruined your opportunity for God to use that circumstance which isn't going to change for your good and for His glory. And so it's our choice. We have to understand that sometimes God's will for our lives is not our will for our lives. That God has different plans. It wasn't Paul's will to be in prison. But that's where he was. And he made the best of it. There are times when God has us in places, situations, and circumstances that we would rather not be in. That's the fact of our walk with Jesus. And we have to understand that. We have to say, Lord, I would rather not be here. If it were up to me, I would be somewhere else. If it were up to me, I would be in a different marriage. But this is the one I'm in. And, and Lord, I, I own up to the responsibility of how I've created this horrible marriage. And Lord, I would rather have different parents. But I recognize that you brought me into this world through them. And yeah, I had a terrible childhood. But Lord, how can I be used to bless somebody else? How can those experiences be used for me to make a difference? Lord, I, I wish I had different kids right now. These kids are driving me insane. Lord, these kids are, are not good, but we have to own up to the fact that how did I help, how did I create the way these kids are right now? Lord, I, I wish I had more money than I do. I wish I wasn't in the debt and financial struggle than I'm in. But we have to own up to how can we be better stewards of what we do have. Rather than feeling sorry for ourselves, calling ourselves a prisoner of all of those things, we need to begin to see ourselves as a prisoner of the Lord. And Paul exhorts us as a prisoner of the Lord. He basically says, look, as a prisoner of the Lord, I have set the example for you, and I think I have the right to exhort you in this way. In fact, he says, I beseech you to walk worthy of the calling with which you were called. I beseech. It literally means to beg. Paul doesn't flex his apostolic muscles here. He doesn't say, hey, I'm the head honcho, and you've got to do what I say. And here's what I'm telling you to do. No, he says, I lovingly plead with you. I lovingly, gently, kindly, 
beg you to respond to my exhortation. And I think this is a, a good application for us as parents. Those of you that are parents. That there comes a place where you have to quit flexing your parental muscles and begin to, to beseech your children. Begin to beg your children to plead with them to exhort them toward righteousness. No longer saying, because I told you so. That's why. Hey, I can get away with that right now with my kids. My son asks me why all the time. Why? Hey, I want you to go to bed. Why? Because the sun's down and I want you to. I don't know why, but because I want you out of my hair. That's why. You know? And they, they want to know why and we don't really have answers for them. We just say, look, I'm bigger than you. I'm older than you. I pay the bills. I feed you. Go to bed. Clean your room. But there comes a point where when your kids get older, that that isn't necessarily the way we should be handling things. And that we should say, look, as a prisoner of the Lord, I beseech you to your son, to your daughter. And we set the example for them, and we live it out before them, and we say, man, I really think that's a bad decision. And I beg you, I plead with you, don't make that decision. Don't do that. Don't go down that road. And you know what? That won't end as a parent. Because you know, as, as parents, especially moms, they, they never see their kids beyond about one years old. You know, even when they're 30. My mom still, I think she thinks I'm like 10. You know? Ryan, you really need to feed your dog. Mom, the dog doesn't die when you're not here. Do you notice that? The dog is alive. He's fine. You don't need to feed him. I will feed the dog while you're here, you know? It, Ryan, I don't know if that's very good dog food to be feeding your dog, you know. And or whatever the case might be, I, kid, kids are always kids to their parents. But we need to understand that as our kids grow up, that just telling them because I told you so, or flexing our parental muscles, or saying, "Well, I pay the bills, so shut up and sit down," that there comes a point where that just doesn't quite work anymore, and that we need to be living it out before them. And loving them and gently and kindly exhorting them toward righteousness. Paul says, I beseech you. He begged them to walk worthy. Worthy has the root idea of weight. It, it speaks of an equal weight, like scales, where there's weight on one side. And in order to balance it out, you need to put weight on the other side. The picture is of a balanced scale to walk worthy. In other words, we should be living lives equal to the blessings described in chapters 1 through 3. So here's all that Jesus has done for you, and the scale's like this. And now Paul says, okay, we need to begin to balance it out with how we live our life. We need to begin to balance out what Jesus has done for us with what we now do for Him as a response. The actions of our life need to be equal to the profession of our mouth. We need to walk the walk and or walk the talk. Practice what we preach. What comes out of our life needs to balance with what comes out of our mouth. And so often it doesn't. We make a profession of faith. We say, Jesus is my Lord. I, I'm saved. I'm born again. I'm a Christian. And so, because of that, we've got all of the blessings from that side of the scale. We've got all of the things that Jesus has done for us. But then our life is not equaling that out. 
And so we're living very imbalanced. And Paul says you need to walk worthy. You need to walk balanced with what comes out of your life so that it would match up with what Jesus has done for you. And is that true of you, of me? Does what come out, does what is coming out of our life equal what is coming out of our mouth? Are we guilty like the Pharisees of drawing near to him with our mouths, but having our hearts be far from him? And that is a, a dangerous place to be. You guys, our lives need to be worthy, weighty of the calling that we've received. And this word calling, he says that we would walk worthy of the calling with which we are called. The word calling is a legal term. It means a summoning. Just like you would be summoned for court to be a witness or to be on the jury. As believers, we've been summoned to live our life in such a way that it balances out with our position in Christ. It's nothing to take lightly. Just like when you are summoned to court, you don't take that lightly. You don't say, I'm going to go hunting today instead. Or I'm going to go fishing or I'm going to go shopping. They'll find you. You have been summoned by the Lord because of the profession of your mouth. Because you said, I am a believer. And now God is saying to you, okay, here's all that I've done for you. And now here's how you need to respond to me. And the beauty of it is, as chapter 2 verse 10 tells us, that these works, that these things that we are doing as a response, they're already created for us. We just have to walk in them. And so it's not like we got to go out and scratch our head and go, okay, well, what am I supposed to do? How do I do this? This is hard. No, they're already created. They're already there. We just walk in them. And Paul is going to begin to tell us, to explain to us how we can walk worthy of our calling with five Christian characteristics. Verses two through six, as Paul gives us a fivefold explanation. And this isn't exhaustive. This isn't all that we do as believers, but this is a really good place to start. If we're doing these things, man, we are on a fast track to living the way Jesus would have us to live. These are incredible things that ought to be a part of our life. These five truths. So let's look at those things. First of all, he says, with all lowliness, it's humility. Literally, this word means to place value upon others. And we don't do that very often, do we? Because it's all about me. We live in a society where it's all about me. In fact, little girls wear t-shirts that say it's all about me. And, you know, that's seemingly a benign message. But in reality, it speaks volumes, doesn't it? It says, I'm the most important person in the world. And you know what? As parents, if we are teaching our kids that the world revolves around them, then guess what? They will believe it. It's part of our natural human flesh. We don't question that. And they'll grow up to be people, to be adults, that think thinks the world revolves around them as well. We need to value others. When somebody is walking up and they've got two items in their hand and you've got a cartload, you let them go in front of you. That's valuing other people ahead of yourself. When you can tell that somebody's really busy and they've got kids running all over the place and they come in behind you to order some food at a restaurant, you let them go ahead of you. That's valuing other people. It's putting other people ahead of yourself. It's considering their needs. Esteeming, Paul said, others 
as better than yourself. Philippians 2, 1 through 4. Humility, though, is not something that is valued in our society at all. It's, in fact, looked down upon. It's a lost virtue in our culture. Nobody says humility. That's, that's an important virtue. In fact, in Bob Bennett's book of virtues, humility is not listed. It's not a virtue that people admire today. We look at it as weakness. In fact, we're told today that if you don't have love for yourself, that you can't love anybody else. That is, that is ridiculous. We have a love for ourselves that's intrinsic. It's, it's called our flesh. We're in love with ourselves. Even people that seemingly have a low self-esteem. The reason they have a low self-esteem is because they've been treated in such a way that they feel badly about themselves because they think they should feel highly about themselves. That's the whole point. Self-love has replaced humility. We are told that a lack of self-esteem is the problem with today's youth. The reason that kids act the way they do is because they don't have enough self-esteem. So for the last 20, 30 years, we've been telling kids how great they are. Has it worked? Not at all. All my growing up years, all through school, that's what they did. They told me how great I was. And fortunately, I came to Christ and I began to realize, no, I'm not great. I'm a wretched sinner. And I need forgiveness. That's what kids need to know. They need to know that they have an amazing Savior who will give them everything they need. All the fulfillment, all the joy, all the love, all the affection. That it won't come through people. That it won't come by somebody telling you how great you are. That doesn't work. Because it's like a drug. You'll want more and more and more of it. It's just like professional athletes. 40,000 people cheering for them, that's never enough. They need it the next night and the next night. And then if they strike out in the bottom of the ninth with two outs and a runner on third and the whole crowd boos, they don't remember all of the times that they were cheered. They only remember that time. And we would be the same way because compliments and the affection and the adoration of man is like a drug. We always need more. Jesus is the only one that can... Fulfill that need. The problem with society is not a lack of self-esteem. It's a lack of humility. That's our problem. It's that we have placed ourselves above others. Now, I'm not saying that we should go around and like hate ourselves, you know, and be like a weirdo that like cuts himself or herself or hurts themselves or does things like that, or that we would go around and talk badly about ourselves. Which that's always like a backdoor kind of pride, anyway. Oh, I'm stupid. Oh, I'm just can't do anything. I'm a klutz. And then, you know, I'm ugly. And then we're hoping people say, oh, no, you're not stupid. You're smart. You're not klutz. You're very talented. Oh, no, you're not ugly. You're so beautiful. And meanwhile, they're thinking in their mind, yeah, you really are those things. But, you know, I've got to be nice. And we want to we want to throw it out there so that we get the compliment that we're wanting. It's backdoor pride. Lack of self-esteem and self-love is not our problem at all. We love ourselves too much. It's the first person we think of when we get up in the morning. It's the last person we think of when we go to bed. It's the only person that we think of when we're on the road. People are cutting us off. We don't think about the fact, well, maybe they're in a hurry, or maybe their wife is delivering a baby, or, or maybe they just got news that their son or daughter was in a terrible car accident. We don't know anything, but all we're thinking about is 
ourselves. And hey, I'm just as guilty as you are. Augustine said the root of all sin is pride. The root of all sin is pride. Any sin in your life, pride is at the very heart of it. Because you're thinking, I am the most important person. I want what I want. I want it now. I want to be gratified. I want to be satisfied. I want what I want. And pride is at the very heart of that. Paul goes on, he says, gentleness. Gentleness is a second characteristic. And gentleness is a product of humility. It starts with humility. It starts with valuing other people higher than yourself. And then gentleness is a part of that. If you lack gentleness, it is because you think too highly of yourself. If you're a person who loses it, who blows your top, who screams and cusses and punches holes in the wall and throws stuff around and physically and verbally assaults people, then you are a person that is totally self-consumed. At that moment in time, and, and we're all guilty of it, when you are just flying off the handle, if you are to stop that moment in your life, what you are demonstrating and what you are saying is, I am the most important person in the world. Yeah, that guy cut me off. And how dare he do that? Because I own the road. I own this place. Who could cut me off? How could they cut in front of me in line? How could she talk to me that way? I deserve better than that. How could you show me that kind of disrespect? And so now I'm going to fly off the handle. And I'm going to show you how powerful I am. When in reality you're just showing how weak you are. Because you have no control over yourself. Gentleness and lack of gentleness is a product of humility or a lack of humility. It's a product of of understanding that people are valuable. And yeah, they may have cut you off, but it's really not that big of a deal. They must be in a bigger hurry than me. Yeah, they did cut in line, and I have been standing here for five minutes before they even got here, and that really does tick me off. But obviously they need to get out of here sooner than I do. And I'm going to value them above myself. I'm going to value their needs above my own. Yeah, they are taking a really long time to get my food done. And I don't know why that person and that person got their food before me. And that just kind of bugs me. But in reality, I'm probably going to get home maybe 10 or 15 minutes later. And it's not going to be the end of the world. Instead of flying off the handle, losing our temper as a result of being completely self-consumed. In both of these things, you guys, humility and gentleness, they are found in Christ. Christ is our ultimate example. Jesus is our example of these things. He was absolutely 100% filled with humility. I mean, just read the Gospels. Jesus would heal somebody, and what would He say? Don't tell anybody. That's not a way to market yourself. That's not a way to make yourself look great. Hey, if it were me, I'd be like, okay, now make sure that when you get back to your little village or your town or wherever it is you live, that you tell everybody, here's my card. (laughs) Right? Hey, when you get back and you know that there's you've got that connection with the guy that runs the nightly news, I mean, make sure that you tell him about me, okay? You know that that rich guy that you know? Make sure you you know throw in a, a good word about me. Jesus could care less about any of that stuff. He said, don't tell anybody. When they beat and mocked and drugged Jesus through the middle of the city, what did Jesus say? Father, forgive them. He was gentle. 
as a lamb led before its shears is dumb, so he opened not his mouth. That's our Jesus. And if we want to have humility and we want to have gentleness, we need to learn from him. In fact, Jesus said, take my yoke upon you. In other words, be close to me. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. For I am gentle and lowly in heart. I'm gentle and I'm humble. And if you want, if you want to be those things, you guys, you got to yoke up with Jesus. You got to be close to Him. And if you find yourself filled with pride, with self-love, if, if you find yourself lacking gentleness, if you find yourself having difficulty in these areas, it's because you're not close to Jesus. That's the bottom line. And he goes on and he talks about long suffering with all lowliness and gentleness with long suffering. That is patience with people. The word patience often in the Bible speaks of patience in your trials and in your circumstances and in your difficulties, which you need to have patience. You need to endure through those times. We need to to bear under those difficulties. But this word means patience with people. And that is hard. And that's why people become like loners and recluses and hermits because they can't stand people and they drive them nuts. But Paul says here, we need to be long-suffering with people. Not with their good attributes, but with all of their attributes. And I think this is no better applied than in marriage. That we would be long-suffering with our spouse. Because You are now, as you're married to them, slowly but surely being introduced to all of their bad characteristics. Now, you knew all of their good ones before you got married. There wasn't one good thing about them that you weren't aware of. Because, hey, we put it all out there. This is my my best. We wear our Sunday best while we're dating. I'm kind, I'm gentle, I'm this, you know, and... Oh man, we, we know all the good stuff about the person. But then when we marry them, when we say I do, when we begin to sleep with that person and eat with that person and live with that person and go on long trips with that person and work out in the yard with that person and do projects around the house with that person, we begin to see all the stuff that we weren't aware of before. And it becomes hard. And that's when difficulties arise because we are not willing to be patient with that person. And hey, none of these things come easy for me. I'm not humble by nature. I'm not gentle by nature. I'm not long-suffering by nature. I'm not a patient guy at all. I want it now. I want Andrea to, to be all that I want her to be and I want it today. Right? That's how we are. How come you haven't changed? I told you I don't like that five minutes ago. And you're still doing it. And we begin to recognize that we are completely different than our spouse in a lot of ways. And we have to be patient with them in those things. He says, bearing with one another in love. This is sort of a a product of being patient that we would bear with people in love. It's not always easy to bear with people, is it? To bear with their idiosyncrasies. To bear with their weaknesses. Their character flaws. And the thing is, is that people are bearing with us. The way that you're bearing with your spouse, well, they're bearing with you. See, we we only put those things out there that are sort of negative and who we really are to the people that know us the best. 
And they're the ones that have to bear with us. See, you don't really have to bear with me unless you're working with me like Stuart or Julie or somebody like that. But most of you, you know, you see, you see Ryan as like this guy that never makes a mistake. And that's just simply not the case. I, I've got a lot of weaknesses. I have a lot of character flaws. I do a lot of stupid things. But see, I, I can easily project myself as this guy that must, oh man, he must just be so easy to live with. And that's what we all do with each other at church or maybe even at work. But it's the people that know you the best. The people that know you the best. They are the ones that have to bear with you in love. And you have to do the same. And if you're not willing to do that, then you're not showing love. And see, love is the fruit of the Spirit. And so we have the Spirit in our hearts, in our lives. And the product of that, the result of that is that we would love people. And see, anybody can love the lovable. It's easy to love at church when everybody's just all so nice and you're great and nobody puts you down, at least to your face. And and everything is just great. Oh man, I just love those people down there. But it's the people that you're closest to. They're the ones you have to bear with. Bear with their difficulties and their character flaws. In love. And then Paul says... A fifth characteristic of walking worthy of the calling with which we were called is unity. And then he gives us seven foundations for unity in the next three verses. But he says that we are to endeavor to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. The fifth characteristic of one that is balanced in his walk with what he says and how he lives, the fifth characteristic is unity. And you know what? Unity is not real common either, is it? In fact, we have a lot of discord, a lot of division, a lot of bitterness, a lot of families that don't talk to each other, a lot of churches that are divided, a lot of workplaces where you work with people but you can't stand them and you never talk to them, and you gossip about them and they gossip about you, and it's just division. And that's how we function. We don't have a lot of unity because... We have pride, we have a lack of gentleness, we have no long-suffering, we don't bear with people in love, and so, bam, there's no unity. And Paul says we need to endeavor to keep the unity. Now, that word endeavor doesn't mean sit around and it'll just happen. It means work really hard. In fact, the word means to study, to labor, to put forth effort. Endeavor to keep the unity. Now, notice it says to keep. You don't keep something you don't already have. You keep that which is already in your possession. And so we already have this unity. We just need to start to act like it and protect it and live in it. This unity is in the spirit, in the bond of peace. And he gives us seven truths to unify around. He says there is one body. One body. That, that is the body of Christ. And we might call that the church universally. That is the church here in Prineville, the church in Bend, the church in all of Oregon and all of the United States and all around the world. That we're one body. Jesus isn't like some mutant that's got like 14 legs and six eyes. And No, he's, he's one body. He's the head. We're his body. And every believer in Jesus Christ is part of that body. But because... It would be impossible for all of us to meet as one body since we're all over the world. And because 
over time, there has been different styles and flavors of ministry. And in some ways it's good and in some ways it hasn't been so good. There are different churches. And I don't know if on this side of heaven we're ever going to have this unity that Paul speaks of here where we're understanding that we're one body because we've divided about some ridiculous things. But here's a good place to start is that we recognize and we realize that we are a body here that's called Calvary Chapel of Crook County. And we can be unified in this body. See, this is a good place to start. And oftentimes the people that scream and yell for unity in the church are the ones that are creating disunity in the local church. And so let's start with having some unity at the local level in the body of believers that you call your church. And so that means you don't undermine the leadership. It means you don't gossip about people. It means that you you don't make things difficult for those that are in charge of ministries. It means you help when you can. It means you give of your time, your treasures, and your talents so that the body can be unified. We're one body. And yeah, we are one body universally as the church. And, and we need to quit dividing on ridiculous things. We need to quit seeing ourselves as Calvary Chapel and Baptist and Presbyterian and Foursquare and, and conservative and Pentecostal. We need to quit seeing ourselves that way. But we do have these different churches. And, and we have different flavors and feels. And I don't think that's all bad. It's not all bad. It can be used for God's glory. But... Rather than trying to fix something that will probably never be fixed, let's try to endeavor to keep the unity in what we can, and that is in the church that we call home, in the family that we live in, in the workplace that we spend a lot of time at. We can endeavor to keep unity. We're one body. We're one spirit. That is one spirit that lives in each one of us. There aren't different spirits There's not the spirit of the conservatives and they don't ever talk about him. And then the spirit of the charismatics and and they kind of, you know, go way out on the other end. No, there is one spirit and he resides in each one of us. And there's one hope, he says, one hope of your calling. And this would speak of salvation, that there's one hope for each one of us and Piggybacked on top of that is the hope that we have that Jesus is coming back for us soon. And you know what? There's been a lot of division about that, hasn't there? About when Jesus is coming back. Churches divide over that. And you know what? Unfortunately, our movement as Calvary Chapel has divided over that, I think, to a degree that is that is really not appropriate. We have said that the place and time of the rapture is one of the most important doctrines in Christianity. And I don't agree with that. I have my opinion about when the rapture will happen, but I could be wrong and I understand that. There's nothing that we need to divide about. There's nothing that we need to say, oh, this is such an important doctrine that it's worth starting another church or it's worth not allowing you to be in ministry because you believe that way. That is, that's crazy. We have one hope. The fact that Jesus is coming back. That's our hope. And I believe it's soon. That's our hope. We shouldn't have many hopes. It shouldn't be like, well, this Christian has a hope that, you know, he's going to get a new car. 
And this Christian over here hopes that she's going to get a shopping spree to Macy's. And this Christian over here, well, she hopes that her husband's going to remodel their house. That shouldn't be our hope. Our hope is in Jesus and that alone. We have one Lord, not many lords, but one Lord, one faith. That is that there is one way, one way to salvation. Not many ways, not as what is becoming popular that all roads lead to heaven or that everybody's saved, which is called universalism, that everybody's saved, that everybody has a a glimmer of, of God in them, and, and you just have to find that, and God it will accept you, and God loves you. Hey, in some ways, I wish that were true. Because then we wouldn't have to be accused of being so dogmatic, and we wouldn't have to be accused of being bigoted and, and narrow-minded. But hey, the Bible's clear. There's one way to God. Jesus said, I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life. There's one faith. There's not many faiths. There's not a whole bunch of ways to get saved. It's not like you go and find what's real for you and what's true for you. There's one faith. He says one baptism, which is probably an unfortunate translation. It, it just basically means one entrance into the body of Christ. That we're not baptized into a local church. That we're baptized into the church, spiritually speaking. And churches have, have taken this to mean, well, you need to be baptized in our church. And then you're really saved. Or then you can become a member. Then you can serve. No, we're not baptized into a church. We're baptized into Jesus. Into the body of Christ. And then he says, one God and Father of all. Who is above all, and through all, and in you all. And so we have one God. We have one God that we all serve. And we can unify around that. When we begin to recognize, you know what? I wouldn't do it that way. I wouldn't raise my kids that way. I wouldn't say it that way. I wouldn't have done it that way. I wouldn't do church that way. But we have one God. And the same God that resides in me resides in them. And we can unify around that. And we're different. And I mean, hey, there's some, there's some, some things out there that, that I don't like a whole lot. And, and I've really been challenged in this, in, in my ministry, in my life, of what it is that we need to be dividing over. And I would say it's very little. There's, there's some things that we cannot argue about, that are black and white, the personal work of Jesus, the Scriptures and their validity and their truth, all of, all of these things that would relate to salvation are unnegotiable. But there's a lot of stuff out there that's pretty gray. And a lot of it is strange to me. I watch these guys on TV and I think, man, it's just bizarre. I watch some of these guys that, that just have these gigantic churches and I listen to what they say and I think, man, it just doesn't seem like what I would say. But that doesn't necessarily make them not a part of the body of Christ. It's not the way I would do it. But hopefully they're saved, they love the Lord, they're on their way to heaven. 
And you know, one of the things that the Lord's really been doing in me is, is showing me that we as a church, we need to be characterized and defined by what we're for rather than what we're against. And I think it's very, very easy for us to be defined by what we're against. Well, we don't do that. And we don't do that. And we're not a part of this. And it's like, okay, so you've just told me everything you're not, but what are you? We need to be defined by who we are. And the Lord's really convicted me of that. There's there's a lot that we can divide over, but it's not worth it. Because we have a common goal. And that is to see people come to Jesus Christ. And, and more than that, you guys, we need unity right here at Calvary Chapel. We need unity in our homes. We need unity in our workplaces. We need unity in our families. And whatever you need to do to endeavor to keep the unity in the spirit of the bond of peace, you need to be doing that. As much as relies upon you, be at peace with all men, the Bible says. And so five things that we need to have characterizing our life. Lowliness, gentleness, long-suffering, bearing with one another in love, and unity. And all of these things, you guys, the lack of these things, it all comes from not being connected to Jesus. That's the bottom line. Sin is always the problem. And Jesus is always the answer. Let's stand and pray together. You've been listening to Pastor Ryan Couch, pastor of Calvary Chapel of Crook County, located in Prineville, Oregon. For more information on Calvary Chapel of Crook County, you may email us at info at calvarycrookcounty.com. Or if you would like to write to us, you may do so at P.O. Box 378, Prineville, Oregon, 97754. Thank you for listening, and God bless.